0: Hello, welcome to the Being Whole podcast. I'm Dr. Cassandra LeClaire, and I'm so happy you're here today for my conversation with Dr. Susie Bannon. Susanna Bannon is an award-winning teacher, scholar, and public servant. Susie has a BA in Communication Studies from the University of Houston downtown, an MA in Communication Studies from Texas State University, and a PhD in Communication Studies from the University of Texas at Austin. She advocates for prison abolition and higher education in prisons at the local and national level. And in 2017, she co-founded the Formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network. And let's kick off this conversation with my friend Susie. Hey everyone, I am so excited today. My friend Susie is here and you're never gonna believe the things that she has to say. She's got so many wonderful stories and she's just a really wonderful person all around. Thank you Susie for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so obviously I know your story, I know a lot about you, I've watched your TEDx talk, I work with you, but I would love for you just to tell, um, tell my listeners, tell our audience here, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, who you are, and what's brought you to this point. Okay,
1: Let's see, how do I do this efficiently? Uh, My name (laughs) is Susie Bannon. Uh, I am a lecturer at Texas State University in the Department of Communication Studies where I work with you, Cassandra, Mm -hmm. Um, and I love it. Um, I just finished my PhD last year from the University of Texas at Austin, Hookham, and I did my master's at Texas State University. So being able to teach there is very much like coming home for me. Um, Prior to coming to San Marcos to do my master's I actually lived in Houston for a long time. That's where I did my undergraduate degree Um, and originally I'm from the Northeast so I made it my way to Texas via New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, And so a little bit about my background and my research. I actually study communication, obviously. My degree is in communication studies. My area of expertise, expertise, because I don't like (laughs) that word, uh, is rhetoric and language. So I'm really interested in how communication shapes the way that uh, we think about the world and how it influences people to act in certain ways. And my dissertation specifically looked at the language that is used to Uh, Engage in advocacy campaigns. And the advocacy campaigns that I was interested in studying were those led by formerly incarcerated people. So people who have been involved in uh, the legal system in some way, shape, or form. And my interest in that uh, stems from my own experience with being formerly incarcerated. So uh, I have spent time in and out of multiple jails and ultimately in prison here in Texas. And it was my experience with the stigma attached to having a criminal record and the discrimination that I faced in the labor and housing markets that came along with that criminal record that kind of motivated me to study this issue further and to try to figure out the ways that we can use language to actually start to work towards greater equity, um, especially for those who are coming out of the legal system. And so that's me in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) In a nutshell. Well, I love, thank you for sharing just like the different pieces of you, like right in your introduction, there are so many different things that we can talk about, you know, just the ways that you moved from the Northeast to Texas, but then thinking about the time that you've spent here, you know, you just said you recently got your doctorate, Dr. Bannon, we're very excited. And your dissertation was working with this, identity issue with these ideas, with this communication aspect of what is the language? How do we talk about people who have been incarcerated and have that life? Did you have those ideas about this for your dissertation prior to being incarcerated? Is that something that was like, I I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your experience and kind of what brought you to that point and share as much of your own journey as you'd like to as well.
1: Of course, uh, absolutely not. I had no intention of going to graduate school, and I had no uh, informed awareness of the experiences of people who had, you know, been to prison, who had felony criminal records or any criminal record for that matter, prior to my experience of coming home from prison. So I spent about a decade of my life off and on of probation. Um, so that, you know, gave me a criminal record, but I somehow managed to float through life, picking up, you know, jobs that were accessible to me. I always worked for small businesses. And so there was more of a one-on-one, there was less, um, abstraction of me as a person. And so people gave me those opportunities where many people would not have had opportunities to be able to, to live and work. Um, And so, yeah, it was when I came home from prison on parole back in 2010 that I immediately, you know, hit the streets to try to find a job because that is a condition of parole. If you don't get a job, you can actually be sent back to prison um, Mm -hmm. and could not find work. Uh, My criminal record had finally caught up with me enough to where I was really facing these barriers that could have potentially threatened my freedom. And so after trying to find work for, you know, three months coming up, you know, unsuccessful, I realized, well, I do have another opportunity and that would be to go back to college. I had already had a couple of years of education, higher ed under my belt at that point, but had never really committed to a degree. I just sort of floated around Texas doing the community college circuit, um, And so I settled back at University of Houston downtown and I declared my, my major communication studies, not because I was interested in communication, but because a good friend of mine had graduated with that degree from UNT up in Denton, and then went on to be a flight attendant. And she had this amazing adventurous life and she you know, got to use her soft skills, her communication skills with people all day long. And I just thought, well, that sounds wonderful. I think I'll go do that. Um, So I had no idea. That that still kind of sounds wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I still, I had no idea that I was going to fall in love with the discipline itself. And it was when I went to my first class on rhetoric, rhetoric and public address um, that the professor told me, you know, you know, she, I shared my story a little bit and she said, you know, people in my field are actually writing about this. They are writing about rhetoric of criminality the way that we talk about justice in this country the way that we talk about prisons and the way that we represent these stories and it's an important line of inquiry so if you wanted to you could probably do that and that was the first time somebody had ever suggested that i pursue a graduate degree and that i had the capacity to be an academic i never you know, I struggled in school, I had ADHD that was undiagnosed, I had mental illness that was undealt with, I had trauma that I was still, you know, all of these things that I had never addressed through my 20s. Um, you know, I never imagined that I could go on to do something that, you know, once you get to your PhD, it's like less than 2% of the population does that. And so that's a pretty big deal. And I just never envisioned that for myself. And so it was that one person who said, you can do this and kind of took me under her wing um, that, that opened my mind and my eyes to the possibilities of graduate school and then being, you know, a scholar later in life.
0: And I love that. And thank you for sharing that because I think so often people will see individuals with advanced degrees and think like, oh, that was always their plan or they had all this set up or they knew what they were doing but it's really, and you know this from your schooling, it's so much more about perseverance and having a support system and being, also, given those, the idea that that's possible, like I'm with you, like I didn't intend to get a PhD, you know, it was like that wasn't something that was in my mindset, you know, and then as, as you realize possibilities exist for you. And so that's where everything that you do, you know, you're opening up a conversation and showing that possibilities exist for this group of people that historically has been told opportunities, not only been told opportunities don't exist, but we're actively taking opportunities away from you. And so, you know, I'd love, you know, to talk a little bit more about, you know, if you will, what are some of the things that you've discovered through your research or through your own experiences about that language and you know, about that communication that really fuels you to keep keep at this work?
1: Just the, the dehumanization that happens through language, that was the primary focus of, of everything that I was doing early on in my graduate studies. Um, the way that we talk about You know, people who are incarcerated, we don't call them people we call them offenders, inmates or prisoners, and that takes away their humanness it makes it easy for them to become an abstraction that you know you don't have to care about. Um, on top of the fact that the language that we used to talk about them is highly stigmatized. So after you know, years and years and years of certain specific representations that we see in the media and popular culture of what types of people we expect to see in prisons um, and jails and how uh, the capacity of those people to, you know, to either achieve something or to even just be good people. Um, those are not the expectations that the dominant representations that we see offer us. Uh, and so part of my work right off the bat was to push for rehumanizing the language that we use to talk about people, but also push back against those dominant hegemonic uh, representations that we see in popular press, in the mass media, in the news, um, in, you know in every inch of or every corner of our imaginary, we see some reference to the legal system because it, it is so deeply embedded in our culture here in the US. Um, and so, yeah, it's it was really the humanization aspect that kind of motivated me to get into this work. Um, and then once, I don't feel like we've accomplished that yet, but once, I felt like okay i have an understanding of this i see where we need to go with it then i started kind of working on the issues of re-entry um primarily you know what access do people have once they're coming out of the system and trying to join mainstream society um how do we get people jobs how do we get people engaged in democracy how do we get people's voting rights back um how do we get people the opportunity to volunteer with organizations because so many people who have been touched by the legal system want to live a life of service. That is absolutely a theme that you see amongst this population, but it's not one that you see represented in mainstream uh, discourse, you know? So um, yeah, the, the humanization element, but then also, you know, what do we do to help support people? Like you're saying, how do we create that community uh, that provides that support that will help these folks thrive um, once they're trying to come home?
0: Right. The re-entry piece. I mean, there's so many things to talk about here. The dehumanization, which I think that people like just even bringing people's awareness to that, like to recognize, like, so yes, when you read the articles and you're saying the offenders that you're, you have, you're, you've separated a human from the act. Right. So just really remembering that there are people involved in all of these things. Yes. The re-entry piece. This too, like just also bringing awareness to people, you know, think about. uh, I just really want to challenge anyone who's listening to think about the number of times you filled out an application or filled out anything, and you go past that box that said, "Have you ever been convicted of a felony?" and you get to check no. And the person who checks yes, you might think in your head like, "Oh, well, whatever they did something bad." You don't know what they did, and you'd also probably haven't, unless you've had somebody in your life or you yourself have gone through this, you don't understand the number of things then. That are they are unable to do if they have to check yes. Like you just said, it's not just, oh, I, you know, about voting, which is obviously huge, you know, about owning firearms, obviously a big deal, but it's also about just going into an organization, like you say, you know, wanting to volunteer somewhere and being told no. And you know, really talking about what that looks like and what that can feel like for somebody who has tried to really change their life and make amends for situations or things that they've gone through or what have you, and then feeling like stuck or stymied or stifled against the society that will not still accept them. You know, I can only imagine the difficulties emotionally there then, which leads to, you know, we can talk about mental health and so many different aspects.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, I'm trying to think of the right word, I want to say disheartening, but that's not even it's soul crushing. Yeah, to want to do right to want to, you know, for example, in my own example, I, you know, I had substance dependence issues happening for a really long time. And so wanting to be sober, which by the way, today is my 12
0: years of sobriety. So I, I wanted to bring
1: that up. I, I saw a <laughs> little props oh, for
0: that. I, I and like I wanted to bring that up. Yes. Congratulations. 12 years of sobriety. That is amazing. And, and also, you know, your journey, just again, letting people know that this is something, you know, again, substance, substances, we can talk about addiction so many different reasons why people are brought to this, this space, right? Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. so yes, congratulations on 12 years of sobriety. That's huge. Thank Absolutely. you.
1: Um, yeah, with wanting to do things differently, um, sober sobriety for me, I didn't get sober in prison, so I don't want to give prison credit for anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got sober prior to going to prison and I, you know, I, I, I'm sober now for 12 years, but I had active substance dependence for about 12 years as well. And it wasn't for a lack of wanting my life to be different. It was just not literally feeling like I was incapable of doing that and not knowing, you know, how to approach it. Um, And so I did end up going to treatment. It was my third time in treatment, you know, when it finally stuck. Um, And so coming home from prison, you know, I'm ready. I am ready to start life anew. And, you know, I was just bright eyed and bushy tailed and, you know, ready to just take on the world and rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. It was like, I'm never going to have a chance. No one is ever gonna see me for who I am and, and the enthusiasm I have to do right in this world and to do things in this world that help other people um, because the only thing they see is that I check that box. And we know that you know 90% of employers use uh, that box on applications. And we also know that about 50% of people are automatically dismissed from the applicant pool without someone even looking at their resume. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so rather just social norms, like it's not necessarily written into anyone's employee handbook that you need to throw away applications that that have checked this box, but it's become such a norm that people who have criminal histories do not deserve Mm -hmm. the opportunity because they're perceived as innately some sort of risk or, you know, more likely to do something to harm the company or whatever. And, and both of those things are actually debunked by research. It's that, you know, we actually see that people with criminal records are one and a half times more productive in the workforce than people without, um, and that they're less likely to commit a future crime once they attain employment. Um, and so there's a lot of just, you know, social norms and and ideologies that guide people's behavior in dealing with people who have criminal records. Um, right. And that's part of what I want to, you know, push back against and resist through the research that I do and the advocacy
0: I do. Um, because not everybody is as
1: fortunate and privileged as I am to have a platform to do that stuff.
0: So then that's, I mean, you bring up so so many good points because that, that is the thought of so many people. It's like, well, but you know what, they were given a chance and they didn't take it or they did do a bad thing or they were wrong or what have you. Um, you know, or they don't, they're not going to be a sort of worker, whatever people's thoughts are. So I love that you, you know, that's what you dig into is you dig into the actual research to say, well, but that's not represented in what we see. So what are the things that you would just say, you know, if somebody is on the street pushing back on on these things, you know, you've said that actually we know that um, formerly incarcerated workers are more productive, what are some other like things that you can tell people to kind of dispel some of these stereotypes that people have?
1: Just that um, you know, punitive measures are not effective in dealing with crime and criminal behavior. Um, they do not work as a deterrent, um, and what is shown to actually be more effective is providing social support, uh, the types of community services and programming that we see on pilots you know, throughout the country and more of, more of the liberal uh, parts of the country where people are treated as human beings that have needs that may not be met and that may have led them to find themselves in the situation that they're in post-incarceration um, and that meeting those needs and that providing those sources of support actually promote their thriving and thus a reduction in criminal behavior and crime. Um, and that's what the whole premise is behind the abolition movement, is that if we can get our communities to a place where everyone has an opportunity to thrive and to, to live their lives fully and they have the resources that they need in order to accomplish that, then we're not going to have you know, higher crime rates. We're going to see a decline in crime, an increase in people being able to have healthy lives, uh, more healthy family dynamics, um, more productive and healthy workplaces, things like that. Um, and so I think that there's just such a, an overwhelming narrative arc about, well, if you've committed some transgression, you've done something wrong, then you are to be punished for that for the rest of your life. Um, but that's not, that's not effective. It, it is actually, and I, I hate to make the, the cost savings um, argument because it really, it is about human beings treated like human beings that are deserving of a good life, mm-hmm. but it is not cost effective to continually put people in cages. It is actually states and local municipalities are losing money because the focus is on incarceration and locking people away and not providing them with the resources that they did not have previously that then led them into whatever their behavior was that ended up, you know, getting them behind bars.
0: Well, and like you said too, you know, like if we could look at it that way, then you know, think about the opportunities. If people were able, you got out and you then thought about going to school and doing these other things. And you've already said not everybody has that privilege, right? So imagine if those opportunities did exist. And that's what I, I think too, if people are willing to look at the system and look at the structure is you can see how we just keep it in this cycle, right? You know, because we let people out and then, but we don't give them opportunities. So they fall back into certain behaviors. And then unfortunately people want to be like, oh yeah, because they're just a bad person or they were going to do that. And look, they just did the same thing without taking that step back and being like, okay, but there were, you know, so many things that were preventing them from being able to go forward, maybe in ways that they wanted to. Right. You know, so as you're, you know, kind of like you have moved into this other space, but you're still actively doing advocacy work, doing research. Do, do these things come up for you, you know, as a person, no longer just like thinking about Susie as a researcher, Dr. Bannon doing her advocacy work, but you going through your day-to-day life, is this still with you? You know, is this something you think about for yourself? I think about
1: it every day. I really, I think about it every day. Um, I, my experience in particular in prison itself was um, traumatizing. And, you know, we know that trauma leaves an imprint on our brains and that that affects us on a day-to-day basis. And I still have memories that pop up randomly, you know, like if I'm in the shower and my hot water heater breaks and all of a sudden it gets very cold, I immediately go back to the first shower I took at Plain State Jail in Dayton, Texas, in the middle of the winter with no heating. And it's like, it's a shock to your system. And so things like that pop up all the time. And then I'm still in touch with some folks that are still incarcerated. And, you know, I hear about things that are going on with them on a regular basis. And so, yes, it is is absolutely fresh for me all the time. Um, but there's also that a distance as well, because I feel like, you know, I, I complain about life a lot, you know, and, and 10 years ago, it, it, I complained way less, you know, because I was just so grateful to be out of that space that now life has kind of, you know, picked up pace and, and I'm, I have my day-to-day, my, my normal life in the free world. And so it's interesting how there's a distance, but there's also a, a closeness to that experience in my life.
0: Yeah. That's, you know, I think that that's something that just speaks volumes to any trauma survivor, really, you know, I mean, I just even, I had my own flashbacks when you're saying those things, you know, of that there is something where, you know, there are things every day that put you back in that space. But yet at the same time, it feels so separate from the space you're in. And that's something that I think is really important for people who are going through any healing process or any trauma or anything to recognize. Like, I don't really know anyone, no matter how far they are removed from things, no matter how much they say they've healed, who doesn't feel that way about their trauma. I really right. don't, you know, about that, the fact that like one minute you can be so in it, even though you can be at the same time, simultaneously somewhere else Yeah, Just like even wreck and even when you're okay and fine and healed or whatever you want to say, or grow going through it. It's just that there is that, that it's that constant level of awareness and that shifts you and it changes you as a person if you are willing to look at it and and try to grow from it and heal from it and really dig into it. And I think that that's why, you know, this podcast and all of this is so important to me is just for exactly what you just said. So thank you so much for talking about that is that, there's always gonna be some level or some layer for whatever it is that people are experiencing, right? No matter how happy and shiny and sparkly you look, there's gonna be a new trigger that will arise. There will be a new way for you to reflect or see something. There will be a new place where you are with cold water in the shower, (laughs) you know? You could be in the most magical place and it could have cold water in the shower and you'd be like, oh fuck, now I'm back here, you know? And I think that's so powerful to talk about that instead of being like those moments make me powerless. I'm going to talk about them because I'm going to say that, yes, that happens. And I can rise from that. And then those are powerful moments for me to be like, no, I am not there anymore. And I want to have that conversation because I think too often we don't. And then people have those moments or those feelings or those flashbacks, and they somehow feel like, they go back into those depths of shame, you know, or they go back into those spirals or they go back to that place instead of being like, no, this is who I am now. This is where I am. So, you know, what do you do when there are those moments where you, you feel that I know you do, I do, where you just feel like you're still that person or still in that place. How do you kind of get out of that? What helps you move through those things?
1: Well, that's a really good question. Well, I do journal I like journaling Um, and I talk myself through it. I was at a, so I will say that there is, there is hella power in being able to say, yes, that was my experience and it does not make me less worthy because I experienced it. Um, I think anyone who has trauma in their history will, you know, who has been able to tell their story will also say that in that you are not reduced to what happened to you. Um, and you are, you have grown as a person because you're able to grapple with that and then name it. Um, and so that, you know, when I first came home from prison, I didn't tell anyone that I was like fresh out. So I'm like sitting in classes at, you know, university of Houston, looking around and the issue of crime or something pops up, or someone says the word felon and I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> oh God. Do they know it's like I had a mark on my forehead that was going to tell people that I just spent the last year incarcerated and there was so much shame attached to that trying to date. I was like agonizing over when do I tell this person, when do I tell them that I have a history of alcoholism when do they tell them that I'm, I'm actually on parole and I have to, you know, go see my parole officer every month, um, and so it took me a long time several years before I was able to articulate my experience in a way that I wasn't apologizing for it.
0: Isn't this such a powerful conversation? I know that this episode will help so many people. I wanted to take a moment and let you know that I created a guide to emotional intelligence, which is something to help you understand your emotions and to learn how to regulate them. It's totally free and I can't wait for you to check it out. You can either scroll below this episode and click the link in the show notes Or head over to Instagram and DM me the words November freebie and I'll send you the link. Now let's continue this episode with Susie.
1: Um, For a long time, I needed to be apologetic about it because I felt like it was something that I had done that was so shameful that I could not say, yeah, that was something terrible that I experienced, but I'm beyond that. I'm a better person because of it and I'm moving forward. Um, And so... Reminding myself how far I've come is a really powerful tool for me to kind of shake off the the ickiness that sometimes comes with those feelings. Uh, Reminding myself that the work that I do is not for myself, but it's for other people and the people especially that I know are still incarcerated. It's for people who I've lost along the way, you know, due to the carceral state and the violence that it imposes on people. Um, And so making it not about me, even though it's a sensory issue that deals with my experience is how I grapple with that. That's, that's the most effective way of dealing with it for me.
0: And I think that that's, again, you know, it's something where to just encourage people to find the ways that, you know, as you're healing and as you're working through things in finding the things that do help you move through that. I mean, that's why, you know, you do the work that you do. That's why I do the work that I do. It's that work helps me. I I am doing it to help other people, but doing that helps me. Like everything that I do every time I, I give somebody my book or whatever it is, it's like a layer of me that I am healing In paying it forward, or whatever you want to call it, you know, but to me, it's also selfish because I'm like, no, I got something from that too, (laughs) you know. Like, but it's knowing then, like, your experiences and all of those things that you did go through. Hopefully, by your ability and through your ability to share those things, you are showing somebody that they're less alone. Cause that's what's so hard about this. Like, what you've gone through, what I've gone through is that sometimes you just feel like, No, there is nobody who could possibly understand what's going on up in my head because what's going up on in my head is fucking crazy. And I feel Mm -hmm. so bad about myself or what I've done or choices or what have you. There is nobody who would get that. So Mm -hmm. I think like you having those conversations, you talking about the things that you've gone through, you sharing experiences of other people too. It's really just spreading this network of people and ideas to show that no, this is something that a lot of people feel, and nobody has to be alone in this. And we can all kind of really, again, recognize what are these feelings and these common threads. You know, like you said, obviously shame comes up. Obviously there's so many feelings of doubt and self-hatred and loathing that again, you talk to trauma survivors, you talk to people who have been through stuff. Those are common feelings, right? Those are things. So it's like, yes, we feel this. So how do we capture that? How do we move through that? and then move forward to take this space that we all want to take, you know? And that's what you're saying back with the reentry too, again, bringing it back to your work and your research is like, you know, when people get to that space where all they want to do is give back or, or be better. And they've worked so hard to work through some of that shame and fear and guilt. I mean, yourself and myself are like testament to this, right? You work through your shit and you're like, oh my gosh, now I have so much to give. I know where I can take this. Right. And you and I were afforded the opportunity to do that through our education and through different things. Right. But yeah. you can imagine where you and I, or you would be not trying to make this about me, where you would be if you hadn't been given that, right? Or if you hadn't taken that opportunity or presented it or however you want to say it, right? It's like that feeling, then a feeling like you have so much to give and so much you want to do, but you don't know where to put it, or you don't know who to give it to, or, or worse yet, people tell you they don't want it because you check some box or whatever, right? Yeah. Soul sucking, I believe is what you called it. Demoralizing, dehumanizing. I mean, what other words are there? I think if people could really kind of see that that is what's happening to so many individuals, maybe they would humanize it a little bit more like you're saying and recognizing, you know, recognize what that feels like, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It makes it real, makes it real for other people. The first time I met Uh, another formerly incarcerated person in in the real world was the most affirming. I felt like there was a blanket wrapped around me because someone finally, someone like me, I was like, you're like me, you know? And that was so, it was liberating that someone, I didn't have to explain anything to them. I could just say, this is me. This was my experience. And they're like, I got you. I get it. Like, of course we're not, you know, homogenous, like every formerly incarcerated person on the planet does not share the same experience. Um, And, you know, the intersections of our identities drastically shape the way that we have that experience. But there are these commonalities that you just feel heard and you feel seen when someone else articulates part of your own story. Um, And that's, it's the community aspect. I think that that our storytelling, our truth speaking helps create. It's not that we're just taking up space, but we're creating space yeah. for ourselves and for other people.
0: No, you're exactly right and that's why again it's so important that we continue to share these stories. That's why I'm so grateful that you you do what you do and you talk about your experiences and share that with people because it is what's needed, you know, so often in the past we have shied away from sharing these experiences or people have held that shame and then felt unable to speak out about the things that have impacted them or about the ways that they felt. And I really hope now, I hope we're kind of breaking that open and just like busting away from that, that, that past because oh my gosh how much how much do we have to learn about psychology and mental health to know that that's unhealthy right like how many studies do we really need to right. be like that is bad right so- it, I, you know, but again, it's that societal shame. You know, so even if somebody is like gets to the place where they're okay and they can speak to their inner circle, it's still like, how can I bust out into this other space? How can I really go out and live life authentically as who I am without having to hide that, without having to wear, like you say, this letter of that I'm a formerly incarcerated person. And so the way in my mind to do that is to keep sharing the experiences like yours to have to open up those conversations so that more people can see, like, oh, hey, yeah, that's my friend. Oh, hey, yeah, that's my friend. And again, just through all of these experiences, seeing the uniqueness of each individual instead of just seeing the label that we've attached to them. You right.
1: Know? Yeah. And and not limiting them to that label in a way that you're not considering. What happened until that label was imposed upon you? Mm -hmm. Everybody has a story. And the majority of people who end up incarcerated have a history of trauma. And so we need to unpack like what led up to this point, what were the social conditions that someone grew up in? What was, what resources were available to them that, you know, or that weren't available to them that were available to other people? And what was, what were all the precursors to that label taking over a person's identity because that's it really supersedes everything else about your identity once you are labeled a felon or a criminal or an offender or, or whatever dehumanizing term you want to use. Um, and so it really the the dominant way of thinking about people with any sort of of history, yeah. any sort of you know dramatic story is that we have a hard time seeing the depth of that person. We see a very superficial version of them. And so, you know, narratives, stories, you know, poetry, books, however you wanna get it out, the articulation of that experience adds depth to that, that identity.
0: Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's so necessary, too, because otherwise, you know, people take those experiences from movies, you know, you know, they're like, oh, that's what prison looks like, or that's what a, you know, an incarcerated person's experience is, instead of really, really listening to the lived experiences of different individuals from all sorts of different angles, like you're saying different walks of life and, and and into, you know, there are so many different factors that impact all of our responses to trauma or to, you know, any situation, right? Like where were you before that? What did your upbringing look like? Where were you raised? You know, what, what resources did you have available after the fact, you know, in you and I, you know, looking at those things, you know, in our work as variables, right? We look at those as like variables. So even that is humanizing right and so really bringing it back to like no those are not only variables that impact people those are the things that hold people in certain spaces and or don't allow them to advance or don't allow them to flourish and what have you so really looking at them in terms of like each person's lived experiences and how has that brought them to where they are now? And maybe you don't, you don't have to understand it. You don't have to agree with it. You don't even have to accept it, but can you look at it and try to, again, humanize what they have gone through and recognize that that could have just as easily been you had you been in that situation or whatever?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, and again, I keep going back to community. I think community is sort of It's the name of, that's the word of the day for me. Um, But, you know, we live in a society that is highly individualistic Mm -hmm. and we like to look at people's circumstances as strictly the result of their, you know, personal choices that they made without any external factors, without any underlying conditions or anything like that. And, you know, I think having empathy promotes community. Thinking about, you know, maybe I can look at this person's story from a further back perspective, you know, hold off on my implicit bias, uh, shirk off the things that, you know, movies or Orange is the New Black or whatever you consume, you know, influences me to, to see this through as a lens using empathy promotes the idea that we are all part of the same community and that we all have different circumstances that we come from different backgrounds but that we all want the same thing and that is to be healthy safe and to thrive yeah
0: Um,
1: and you know there is there's difficulty in getting people to see other people like that um and so yeah i know that storytelling narratives can help promote empathy there's actually um actually research that shows that your brain responds to stories in a way that promotes greater empathy for others. And so I think that that's the power, that's the power of your story, that's the power of my story and anyone else who, you know, kind of breaks through that shame, Mm -hmm. um, the shame bubble that I found myself in for so long, Mm -hmm. that is what's gonna change people's minds and hearts
0: absolutely no i agree with you i'm so grateful that you were willing to take time to come on and share parts of your story and to really just kind of talk about some of these things because again you know we talked about it in a form of like formerly incarcerated people or people who have gone through that system but yet when you look at what we've really talked about we've talked about trauma we've talked about people accepting what where they are and being able to then have spaces to step into and so often the reason that people feel like they can't step into those spaces is because of the things that they've been told or is because of the, the the shame that they hold on to or because of the fear. And so, again, it's not just also giving people platforms to share their stories, but it's how are we responding to those stories? You know, how are we showing up for people when they do, you know, give us these pieces of vulnerability. When they do share these pieces of our identity, so again, I just thank you so much for opening up that conversation and really um, engaging people's minds to think about things in a different way and to hopefully give a different thought too. The next time you see some application that's like, you know, have you been convicted of a felony? Think about that. You know, think about what that feels like to check no, and what it would feel like to check no. yes. You know, think about all of the different spaces where, you know, just even you've gone through something and maybe you don't want to share it because you feel shame and then think about what it looks like to have so much societal shame attached to things. You know, I just, again, Susie, I'm so appreciative of your time and your willingness to share your experiences. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. This has been really meaningful and wonderful. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunity.
0: Uh, Is there anything, I mean, obviously I'll link um, all of your information in the show notes and everything. Is there any um, thing that you want to point people to or direct people to, or to look you up or anything like that?
1: Yeah, um, so I did help start a nonprofit a few years ago called the Formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network. And we are essentially a network of people who have had an experience of incarceration and are now either graduated from higher ed, an institution of higher ed, or are currently in school. And we offer a lot of different services like professional networking, mentoring, things like that. But we also do advocacy work around uh, increased access to higher education inside the prison system, and so you can check out us and our, our mission statement. It's ficgn.org. We also have a really um, involved or a really engaging Facebook presence, so you can check us out on there. Uh, we're always looking for volunteers. Um, you can donate some cash if you want to. Um, yeah, it's really meaningful work, and and I believe that wholeheartedly in our mission that we are promoting. The type of community and empathy that, that we just talked about at length. So check out FICGN. You can find me on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. You can link all that stuff in the show notes. Yeah,
0: for sure. Well, thank you again, Dr. Bannon. So excited that you were here today. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I hope that you've loved this conversation today. Susie is such a lovely person, and I'm honored to watch her journey of making an impact for those who are formerly incarcerated. I hope, if anything, today's episode helped you gain new perspective on how we can be more empathic toward those who may be labeled as a felon or having a criminal record. Here are a few of my takeaways from Today with Susie. Number one, all it takes is one person who believes in your future that unlocks everything for you, and you may find yourself curious about a path that you never considered. Number two, it's important as a collective to think of everyone as a human and remove the stigma of labels. Once a human is labeled something in a negative light, it takes away their humanness. Number three, punitive consequences are not nearly as effective as social support and programs to really offer an alternative new leaf for humans that have been incarcerated. Number four, There are things every day that can bring you back to your traumatic moments of the past, but it's about looking at those layers and healing from it. There may be new triggers that arise, but choosing to lean in and learn how to heal for yourself is so incredibly important in order to take your power back. Number five, journaling can be a really beautiful way to name your feelings or experiences. From there, you can truly start to open up and heal. Number six, and helping others by sharing your experiences and traumas, you are also in a way healing yourself. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. You can find all of Susie's links in the show notes below. I'll be back next week with another episode. Bye-bye.